Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we're going beyond the donut hole and into the fragile China set to solve yet another Ryan Johnson whodunit. That's right. We are reviewing Netflix's Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. As always, we're going to start this conversation with an icebreaker question before jumping into a spoiler-free review and verdict on the film. And then we'll conclude our conversation by going into an in-depth spoiler discussion where we'll discuss a a few of the themes or just uh, some of the, the goodies this movie has in store. I can't do it alone. No one not even Benoit Blanc can solve a mystery on his own. He's always got, at least in the two movies, he's always got someone there to help him. Joining me today from the Cinematropolis, uh, also recently of Flick Attack and World Literature Today, Daniel Bokemper. Daniel, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. So happy to start peeling back this glass onion. Literally, the listeners can't see. He's peeling an onion <laughs> right now. It smells really That's why I'm bad. crying. <laughs> so <laughs> If you hear chomping, uh, followed by te- <laughs> crying, that's that is exactly what what that is. Um, also, super excited to be rejoined by the managing editor at No Film School, Joe Light. Joe, welcome back. Hi, thank you for inviting me on again. It's always a pleasure, Joe. Speaking of people, it's a pleasure to speak with on a podcast. My old friend Arthur Gordon, Good Trash Genre Cast co-host and producer and co-founder of the Good Trash Media website. Arthur, welcome back to the Cinemax Schematic. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for having me. I'm just going to throw this out there. We don't need to talk about it, but I just want to say preemptively, congratulations to the three of you. You guys are all now members of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. Represent. Mm-hmm. I-, I thought you were going to say this is our podcast now. <laughs> and- <laughs> he is passing the torch. I am going to be murdered tonight at some point. So <laughs> was not me. Aww. Absolutely not Julian me. Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> I had to call on some personal favors. Uh, I couldn't quite get Jillian Flynn. I couldn't get the Harvey boys. I had to go all the way to the boxcar children to write write this mystery. Ladies and gentlemen, before we get into today's review of The Glass Onion, I just wanted to note that if you are listening to the show today and enjoy our conversation, really the best way you can support us and keep us alive so not to be murdered by someone in an act of foul play uh, you can support the show by subscribing to us on your preferred app and leaving us a rating or review, most in particular of uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Doing those ratings is going to help us get discovered by more listeners like you. And when I am murdered, you'll have all the clues you need. You have to go back and scour through every episode of the podcast. Daniel, don't give me those eyes, man. Mm, don't ready. give me those eyes. How long do you think that'd take? Uh, too long. No. Too long. I would did- undersell it. Only like eight days straight. Uh, it's hundreds of hours. Oh, hundreds. <laughs> a couple <laughs> we, weeks. We have over 100 episodes in this feed, and some of these are a couple of hours long. Some of them are also <laughs> only 20 minutes, but you know, hey, there you go. That's a like, commute, a long commute. <laughs> well, uh, listeners, as we always do, we're going to have a, a bit of an icebreaker question just so you can get to know a little bit more about the guests we have around the table today. So I have come up with a, a murder mystery related prompt for you all today. You guest hosts are writing an Agatha Christie style whodunit featuring fictional characters. So near no real life people, only fictional characters. Where is it set? Who is murdered? Who is the killer and why? All right. Who done it? They all did it. But if you want to know who killed Mr. Body, I did in the hall with the revolver. Okay, Chief, take him away. Joe, I'm going to start with you. Oh, why are you starting with me? (laughs) Uh, Because this is going to give you some indication as to my opinion of this film. Uh, 
I thought about putting Benoit Blanc in like the final scene of the last Bond movie and let Benoit Blanc get murdered by the villain and then Bond has to figure it out because I don't want any more knives out. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Oh, <laughs> snap. Daniel, you cursed us. There is going to be a C at this table. Maybe. The knives That's are out. <laughs> they are. I mean, I guess that's good news for James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. He's maybe I, he survives. Daniel Craig is coming back again, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Daniel Bo Kemper, how about you? So I uh, obviously I can't follow the rules. Uh, so when you say no real people, I I do the opposite of that. Uh, okay. But, okay. Fine. You can use WWE wrestlers. Thank you. I will, thank you, you can so do that. much. Dang it. <laughs> they're not. They're characters. No. I. Uh, so I like really. I've. <laughs> was toying around with this question. I was thinking of the idea of how cool it would be to have a whodunit where one person plays every single suspect. <laughs> and I thought of like kind of like Spike Jones style, like being John Malkovich when John Malkovich goes inside his own mind and it's Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich for a few times. So I was thinking like, what if like Michael Keaton went inside his own mind and Birdman Michael Keaton was murdering multiplicity Michael Keaton to be able to be taken seriously as an actor and Batman Michael Keaton and Beetlejuice Michael Keaton and maybe Vulture Michael Keaton, but probably not. He's not important. He's just there. Um, they they have to try and both prevent themselves from being murdered, but but solve what really happens because no one knows which Keaton is the the killer Keaton. So, but okay, no, no. I think you're. I think I, I want to clarify on the Vulture Keaton because much like his appearance in Morbius, he's going to show up in the post credit stinger with no context. Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> and uh, but also um, this Glass Onion film with a uh, a lot of cameos that we'll see, and uh, Michael Keaton is among them. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert! So I had to get the the Keaton quota. So 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 Michael Keaton is cameoing in his. Michael Keaton, his, his his murder mystery whodunit starring all Michael Keaton characters. Yes, he is. A, <laughs> he's his own cameo. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie. I would watch that movie. 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like tomorrow. I mean, it's just like the Nick Cage movie thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Unbearable like weight. The unbearable weight of, of massive, massive talent. talent. That was a fun, that was a fun yeah. time. Made by Twitter. It was great. Arthur Gordon, what are your selections? Yeah, well, I, I, I did go with uh, professional wrestlers. So yes. there you are. Um, so... I've set it up. Major figures, executives, your uh, your Triple H's and Stephanie McMahon's, your Tony Khan's, your Court Bowers, your Ghettos, uh, and wrestlers. So your Roman Reigns, your Jay White's, your Okada's, uh, your uh, Kenny Omega's. Uh, they have all descended upon uh, the Bellagio in Vegas as sort of a neutral ground to discuss the reinstitution and rebranding of the National Wrestling Alliance as the International Wrestling Alliance and to promote the idea that the companies are stronger when they find ways to work together. After the first night, Triple H, the chief content officer for the WWE, is found dead in the Bellagio Fountains, an apparent drowning. Further analysis shows signs of struggle. Could it be one of the other owners feeling threatened about losing their business? One of the champions threatened in their place at the top of the mountain? Or is it something older and more primal than that? It was the Lionheart, Chris Jericho, who had been a major proponent and ambassador for the International Wrestling Alliance who killed Triple H. Not because of alliances and ratings, but because 20 years ago at WrestleMania 18, Triple H beat Chris Jericho. And for 20 years, Jericho looked at that loss at his having the foundation of his legacy tarnished by nepotism and politics, thus hindering him from being considered by all to be named amongst the top tier of legendary professional wrestlers. That's incredible. I'm, I'm going to need you to not ask me questions throughout this podcast. I have to process I, that. I, 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 
Arthur, I need you to. We need. To, I'll, we'll work together to pitch the script because that sounds like a movie they would actually make. Let's do it. WWE Studios. Yes. <laughs> I am on board with that. Also, I was totally joking about the wrestlers. I'm so glad Arthur was ready. <laughs> All right, mine's not going to be on that level. So I've got two for you. Number one, Anakin Skywalker, episode three, has been murdered. He has been murdered on the balcony from Aladdin. Okay. And who discovers his body? But Jasmine. Now, the thing is, he was actually murdered by Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road. Why? Why was he murdered? She was trying to frame Aladdin for killing uh, Anakin Skywalker. But she really just wanted his mechanical arm because it was a lot cooler than hers. Oh, <laughs> it was all mechanical arm, okay? That's number one. Number two, we have both Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland have been murdered in the X-Mansion. And it's up to Professor X to figure out who's lying. It's definitely not Andrew Garfield. It could be Wolverine. I'm just joking. It's definitely Andrew Garfield. Why? Because he's so pissed off his franchise got shortchanged as the best Spider-Man. All right, listeners. Do you have any prompts or any movies you'd like to get made? Who done it stories you want to tell? You can send us those to the cinematropolis at gmail.com or you can hit us up on social media at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis. Or as long as it is still standing by the time this episode publishes, I'm not sure it will, but as long as it's still standing, you can find our Twitter channel at the cinematrop on Twitter. Again, we'll see by the time this episode publishes if it's still afloat. But here we go. Another sort of icebreaker question I have to ask. I wanted to ask you all about. Ryan Johnson's a very special filmmaker who's, who's very close to my heart. I, I, I you know, I don't want to say fanboy, but I also will unapologetically defend and love everything he's made to date so far. So I guess that makes me a fanboy, even though I, I do think all of his stuff is really that good. That said, he's also uh, mostly due to Star Wars but he's generally become a somewhat polarizing filmmaker, I would say. Uh, and also he's very engaged on Twitter. And despite the fact that I feel like he's actually pretty classy on Twitter, his classiness on Twitter only gives the trolls fuel to hate him more. So I'm saying all this to say, how familiar are you all with Ryan Johnson's body of work beyond Star Wars, uh, The Last Jedi? Arthur, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I'm fairly familiar. I've seen everything except for Brothers Bloom. Um you know, Brick had come out just a few years really before I went to UCO, I think. Nice. I remember timeline. So I was aware of that. Um, Looper, uh, I went to see. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of kept up with that. I just never caught up with uh, Brothers Bloom. So I'm aware of him. I think he's a director who I've always enjoyed conceptually a lot more. Uh, you know, I, I don't really find myself wanting to revisit his stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's good, but it's not something like I want to go back to often. Yeah. Uh, except for probably Knives Out, uh, which I think is just more in my wheelhouse. Um, but I, I like the ideas that he usually comes up with. And, and he's got a knowledge, obviously, of genre and, and tropes and understanding that and making uh, that into something at least unique. And so that, that's kind of where I am with him. Yeah. yeah. But So you're like you're, you admire like just the creativity and what he brings, but also none of his uh, other than Knives Out, none of his films are really like, ah, got to got to it's worth revisiting. Yeah. So yeah. 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 I think that's fair. Daniel Bokemper, mm -hmm. thoughts on Ryan Johnson or how familiar you're with his body of work? Yeah, I've seen all of his feature length stuff at least once, starting with Brick in high school. Um, I I know I've seen the Brothers Plume. 
I, I, I do not remember anything about that film besides like Adrian Brody's in it, right? Yeah, Adrian okay, Brody, good. Mark Ruffalo, Haggard from Harry Potter shows up, rest in yes. peace, uh, shows up for a few scenes, which is fun. Is it Rachel Wise? Who's the... Yes. Oh, it is her, I think. Yeah. Man, I haven't thought about her. I don't, yes, she is yes. in that movie. It's a good cast. It is. And uh, again, I cannot <laughs> say much about the movie, but I've seen it once. Um, I know I have. Um, but yeah, besides that, like Looper, The Last Jedi, um, Knives Out, um, they're all really good. I think Johnson is is um, evident that you don't need a huge filmography because it feels like like I feel like he's done more movies. But then when you look at his filmography, it's it's pretty narrow. There isn't he's he's one of those directors, kind of like a Taika Waititi. I mean, not comparing their specific styles, but in yeah. terms of like indie director who was right place, right time. Whenever Disney, Mar- uh, Marvel, Star Wars was like. We want to get talented directors mm-hmm. to work on our big, huge projects because we can pay them less and they're passionate about the projects. And, you know, not some of those directors have come and failed so, and fallen out of, uh, you know, fallen out of favor where others have really like, again, Taika Waititi is another example where people just can't just, uh, seem to get enough of them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, all that to say is I don't think you have to have a huge filmography to be important and to kind of carve your place and mm-hmm. in cinema. All right. Jill Light. Thoughts on Ryan Johnson uh, as a filmmaker? How how much of how many of his things have you seen? Yeah, I've seen all his work. Uh, I think Looper is probably my favorite of his. Uh, I definitely saw Brick really, really early on, and then I I've revisited that one a couple of times. So I think he's a very capable filmmaker for sure. I think I get frustrated with myself when I don't enjoy someone's work. And so I was having a lot of conversations earlier today, just trying to figure out like, why am I feeling this way about this movie? And one of the conversations I had with a screenwriting friend of mine was that he's really, really good at like deconstructing things. Like that's Mm -hmm. where I think he really shines is like, he Mm -hmm. loves to pull things apart and turn them on their head. And I think that's why like knives out did so well. Um, And I appreciate that you point out that, yes, he's very engaged in Twitter. I do think that has backfired on him to some degree because it it almost comes off sometimes as an inability to take critique uh, just because he's always defending himself. Like he can't just let it sit. Um, so I think for me, the disconnect in his recent work is that he he loves to pull things apart, but then when people don't always get it, he he sort of has this, in my opinion, this condescension almost where he feels like, I know movies better than you and you just don't get my work. And it's like the conversation that I heard, had earlier today sort of likened it to like when there's those really fancy chefs and they do like a really fancy version of PB&J and it's just, like you just want a PB&J, like you don't have to deconstruct it or make it fancy. So that's kind of how I feel about him now. Like I think, again, he's very capable. He he knows what he's doing, but like I, I just don't feel like I connect with a lot of his recent movies just for those reasons because I, I kind of get that sense of like – He's like sort of patting himself on the back a little bit a lot of the time. So I think that's where, where he's I definitely tiptoeing up to that line. Yeah. And is that more? And just out of curiosity, is it more? Do you see it more in his work or is it just one of those because you've you, you see him on Twitter and you mm. read so much about him, you kind of pick up that vibe and then it kind of closely because well, uh, I do that with a lot of filmmakers, you yeah. know, um, I feel like I definitely felt it. In knives in in this glass onion, uh, uh, particularly, like I mm-hmm. felt like he felt like he was being really clever a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and when I can sense that, I'm sort of just like, 
I, I felt the same way about Damon Chazelle and La La Land, to be honest, because he's like talking at me about how much jazz, like all the important things about jazz. And I, I think I can just sense that a lot of the time through a filmmaker. Um, and like I said, I really liked Brick, but thinking back on it, that kind of feels a little bit pretentious to me now. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like to be like this person that doesn't like someone's work, and I don't like disagreeing with people, <laughs> honestly. So it's like more frustrating for me, honestly, to to dislike work that a lot of people appreciate so much. And I can see the value in, in like a lot of the things, but yeah, I just didn't like this movie. It's not for everybody. It's not. <laughs> hey, listen, you got to be honest with yourself um, about what you like and what you don't like and you know, I think Brick also came at a time there weren't really very many indie movies doing that sort of genre mix up. Mm-hmm. Like now, it I mean, gosh, there's just so many of them on every streaming platform. But that I think what makes that one unique is it came so early. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why like at the time it felt like a little more like, oh, innovation. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, I mean, it's not that it wasn't innovative, but I, I just feel like the, the so many movies and television shows that are constantly doing that same type of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, gosh, that came out like we had community, an entire TV show that thrived on a very similar thing where you're kind mm-hmm. of genre matching and kind of poking fun of the tropes and whatnot. So it's, yeah, the world's a little different. Um, well, we're going to get into that more. I, the one thing I want to, I just want to acknowledge outside of the movies, I already said unabashed fanboy. I'm just going to be honest, but uh, his work on breaking bad also mm-hmm. in my mind, top tier, um, and I think that work might in some ways works better, Joe, because he didn't write the scripts for those. Yeah. Um, yeah he did some really good work there. Yeah. He did uh, Fly, which was the, a really great um, bottle, episode. bottle episode. But then he also did Ozymandias. Uh, yeah, however you want to pronounce it. But it's uh, two episodes before the finale, which in my mind is like one of the greatest episodes of television. Mm-hmm. Not just because of him, but it was oh, just no, it was like it was like the perfect mix of direct uh, acting, directing, writing all together. But. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, it's time for us to get into our spoiler-free section of our review of Glass Onion. Hello! Oh, my God! Crew, we've arrived! Disruptors have assembled! Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Prom, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. This is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? Alibari. That has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Oh, holy shit. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a murder and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. So according to IMDb, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, is described as famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. A couple of things I just want to note about this movie. Uh, this film debuts in select theaters for a one-week-only engagement starting Wednesday, November 23rd. That is the day before Thanksgiving. If all goes as planned, that's today. As you're listening, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, it is today. 
And then if you don't catch it in theaters, although I, I personally will be encouraging you to watch it on the big screen, but if you don't, it will be playing on Netflix on December 23rd, just in time for Christmas holidays. Another just interesting tidbit, and you guys can feel free to comment. I didn't really have any questions around this, but I just wanted to acknowledge that I just, I'm really into the behind the scenes, sort of whatever the heck was happening here. So you may remember Knives Out was a Lionsgate distributed film. They announced a sequel. There's some a few details I'm missing, but what it appears to be from what I've read is that actually Ron, uh, Ryan Johnson and his producer, Ron Bergman, retained the rights to the character so they can license the character, like that quote-unquote Knives Out IP. They own it. So they didn't actually have to give it to Lionsgate. So I might be... Again, listeners or any of you who maybe can correct me if I'm wrong, that's the part that I was having a hard time digging up specifics about. But uh, Glass Onion and a yet-to-be-made sequel were won by Netflix in a bidding war between Apple, Amazon, and then, again, the original distributor, Lionsgate, was in that bidding war as well. And the price tag for the rights to make the two sequels are said to have cost Netflix $469 million to make the sequels. Again, want to reiterate, as far as like I've read, Ryan Johnson and Ron Bergman own the characters. So like theoretically, if, if Amazon paid more money for the next two after the third one, they could theoretically go go there, if I'm understanding it right. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the pact gave Johnson immense creative control, and sources tell The Hollywood Reporter he doesn't have to, to take notes from the streamer. The only contingencies were that Craig must star in the sequels and that each must have at least the budget of the 2019 movie, which was uh, in the $40 million range. Sources say that uh, Johnson, Bergman, and Craig stand to walk away with an upward of $100 million each. couple thoughts on that. This is just, uh, yeah, editorializing. It sounds like this is one of those, the pandemic, people were freaking out in the pandemic to get content, right place, right time. Uh, Knives Out was a huge hit in 2019 right before the pandemic shut stuff down at the time listeners and you guys may recall, everyone was like thinking theaters might be dead. We weren't sure if it was going to come back. If this had happened today, there's no way they walk away with $469 million. And by the way, my understanding is that is not, again, not the budget for the movies. That is how much Netflix is paying to have the opportunity to make the movies. So, uh, so that's number one. I think it's a, one of those like weird, like once in a lifetime opportunity sort of things for Johnson and Bergman. Also, only Ryan Johnson, it's very unlikely he's ever going back to Star Wars. And why should he? He doesn't need it. <laughs> like, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on that at all? I, I don't know. I just, I thought that was an interesting behind the scenes story about how this film came to be at Netflix. I don't know. I feel like Disney is just going to make Star Wars what it really wants it to be. And like The Last Jedi just felt like too much of a push in a, in what I felt was a very intriguing direction, but like, ooh, can't have that. Gotta bring back. What are we gonna do with Palpatine? How are people gonna know what this movie is about? If somehow we... <laughs> Palpatine returns. Yeah, somehow. I just I don't know. He's just see it like that. Like that's so I don't I don't think Johnson needs to be there. And he's got his franchise. I mean, he's gonna have knives out. It might it could grow insufferable eventually, but right now it seems solid. So no, I don't think there's any reason. He did say in an interview this week he did that he would he wants to go back though. I and yeah, I mean. For the money. I'm yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> um, Joe, are there anything you want to add related to that? I don't know. At this point, I'm just like, it's just like, again, editorializing about whatever happened. I think I'm always just hesitant to know any any filmmakers getting to 
kind of have a, a chance to make a Netflix movie. I think it's really an opportunity to see how strong they actually are as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I, th- I think cream rises to the top and, and we've seen filmmakers do Netflix originals that are very, very, very self-indulgent and just miss the mark. And then we've seen others who seem to, to manage that well. And I think it is able to set a bar in, in a unique way, but I'm always hesitant going into any kind of Netflix original. Yeah. No notes is not my perspective is generally speaking. That's not always leading to the best movie. Yeah. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Well, with all that said, what were your overall spoiler-free thoughts on Glass Onion? Daniel Bokemper, start with you. Yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's safe to say this might apply to a lot of whodunits, but, um, and we've gotten quite a few lately, but uh, especially Knives Out. I think what you're getting is you're going to get at least a very interesting, if not excellent, ensemble cast. You're going to have a very strong anchor of a recurring character um, in Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc. And I think you're going to get a mystery that – is nearly impossible to guess the outcome without a bit more to it. Or if, if you think you even have it, there's always a few caveats. There's always a few extra like twists and turns. And I think what compelled me to glass onion specifically, I do think the, the cast again. Um, and I specifically want to nod to Janelle Monet, uh, Dave Batista and Kate Hudson are all really great characters. Um, there is a greater focus on Benoit Blanc. Some people, um, I could see that getting a little annoyed. And I almost was like borderline, maybe, anno- but not, no, it was like right on the cusp where it was like, the character isn't entirely overexposed, but he's definitely more of a presence here than he is in Knives Out. And it it's kind of a toss up. Like for me, I like it, but I could see that working to the film's detriment a little bit. Um, but regardless, you get more of him. I also just really like the cinematography. I think with a whodunit, you're already naturally looking for a lot of things in both the writing and the cinematography. So you're looking for just single pieces of dialogue, little shots, little illusions. How is somebody framed? Um, and this, to that extent, you know, Ryan Johnson does do a little bit of the like, oh, I'm going to trick you a lot because pretty much every character is framed, not just narratively, but but literally how they're perceived. You will see a moment where they seem like they could possibly be. A killer, and I think that's a good whodunit when it's like pretty much everyone um, is is potentially likely likely to be the um, the murderer, but you know you don't you don't entirely know what what tangent it's going to take. But I do like that little. I don't know. I I really like the I Spy books as a kid, and uh, so I think I find myself kind of revisiting that, and 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 it's a kind of a sense of wonder when you get certain shots, and we'll we'll break down some of those I think a little bit later. But yeah, I I think ultimately it's I do really like it. The the thing I probably don't like it's two things, and one is, um, it did feel a little bit long. Like the the one thing I liked, um about this film. And I, and I think when you try to compare it, um, is the, the flashbacks, um, there, there is like a moment. And in one portion, I think like the third act where there is a very, you get a pretty large flashback and you get like an exposition dump and it's a little bit, it's a little more, I guess, strategic. It's, it's, it's paced a little bit better, I think, um, in knives out. And so I'm kind of holding its predecessor against it, but I, uh, I, that threw me out a little bit. Um, but otherwise, I, I I definitely really enjoyed it. I think that's just a minor complaint um, of an otherwise really enjoyable and just fun movie. And I I always there for fun. You know, it doesn't take much to entertain me. But I think this film does create something that's really compelling and, and potentially worth revisiting. 
Are you, uh, out of curiosity, because uh, this actually came up when we were sitting in the, we all saw this in the same screening. When you watch uh, Whodunits, are you trying to figure it out or are you just along for the ride? I find myself like wondering. I think that's it's natural for your curiosity to get tugged just a little bit and wonder. But the thing about Knives Out, like, like just knowing Knives Out specifically is one where it kind of it plays with the idea of it could be potentially anybody and you it really doesn't start to narrow until the film's final movement. Um so less so, but like I can't help but just like look at things or or again see how certain characters positioned or if something strategic there's a moment in this film where where one character says something and you see the reflection of another character. It's ultimately a red herring and there's a lot of them in this film, but like it, it's stuff like that and you can't I, I feel like it's hard to not help but like try and think but really i do prefer to just watch it unfold let the film be the film let it tell me not try and like guess because then you can like if something doesn't happen that you you want or didn't expect it's not always pleasant when your expectations are subverted and for this film it works for me but there's other instances where it feels um kind of unnatural uh Arthur was uh, talking about pro wrestling in his uh, answer to the icebreaker. And I think that's like a really good example of like sometimes when things, even when they go the way they should, they don't always feel satisfying or you always want something more. We didn't find that here, but, but I feel like when you start to like really, really try to anticipate what's going to happen, um, you, you kind of spoil it a little bit for yourself, but you know, it's, it's, I think whodunits can attract a lot of different people. And I think, the cool thing about these is it still should be satisfying for people who like to do that. I was just curious because I, I think it's a different it, – it does change the experience a little bit when you're mm-hmm. trying to, to solve versus just like letting it happen. I don't think there's a better or worse way to do it. I just uh, – I'm, I'm kind of – it's – with the number of whodunits who have come out come out in the last, last like seems like 18 months, it's, it's definitely a question I've been thinking about a lot more. Um, Joe, I know you've tipped your hand a little bit here, but overall thoughts, uh, anything you want to elaborate on here? Yeah, uh, I will say I think Janelle Monae is stunning, beautiful, perfect. I loved her so much. I thought she was great. Um, Really glad to see her flex some different acting muscles in this. I liked that it was set during the pandemic. I thought that was fun. I really liked the Among Us joke. There were two different people who we've lost since that was filmed. uh, That were Stephen Sodheim, Mm -hmm. right? And then um, Angela Lansbury. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I thought that was a really good bit. Um, Yeah. I, uh, I'll just say broadly a few things that I didn't enjoy. Um, I thought it took way too long to get started. Uh, I, I actually like checked the time because, uh, the, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but like the actual case doesn't get going until about an hour into the movie. And that felt really, really late to me. Um, so I was sort of like, okay, okay, okay. I didn't love the way it was shot. Uh, I, I really enjoy the things that you pointed out, Daniel, but I, I was like, why is the camera... Why can't it just like sit still for a second because he's moving it in all these ways that don't feel necessary to me. Lots of like wide sweeping shots that I think are just taking advantage of the money that they had and the set that they were on. Um, Yeah, I just um, I I feel like the Knives Out is much stronger of this type of film. I liked that Knives Out was. More of a, not necessarily like a closed door mystery, but it almost was. And it was like a a limited location. And this one was just sort of like all over the place and just so slow to get started for me. And I also think the cast in the first one might be stronger. Although I love, again, Janelle Monae. I love her so much. But yeah. Um, 
yeah, I just I just was a little bit frustrated by this movie, I think, overall. Um I, I also think it's more like conceptual things that, that rubbed me a little bit in, and I'm glad that you, Caleb, brought up the the amount of money that he's walking away with, Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker, and he's trying in this movie to comment on ooh, wealth bad. Um yeah. and that sort of irked me and I don't feel like he's really saying anything significant about wealth. So story wise I was a bit a bit um not I'm I wasn't jiving with that as much either. Yeah. No, no, I think that's fair. And we're going to get more into depth in that in the spoiler section. And uh, it's okay. Not all movies are for all people. And if you weren't honest here, I would be disappointed. To Arthur's point, like uh, Netflix tends to bring out things about directors that amps up what makes them them a lot. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's more subjective where someone really likes that and then it pisses a bunch of other people (laughs) off. If the movie's a little into itself, I would say, and if that bothers, if that's a, if, if that bothers you as a viewer, where a movie feels like it again, oh, it clearly thinks it's being very smart. Mm-hmm. That yeah, this is definitely gonna annoy some people. <laughs> I I think Arthur Gordon overall thoughts. Yeah, I'm probably just gonna echo uh, Joe Daniel here. Um, overall, I'm very positive on the movie. I, I I did enjoy it quite a bit. I laughed a lot. Um, and I think that maybe what works. I think it has some some strong humor. Uh, throughout and even a lot of the non secular gags like uh, the hourly dong uh, <laughs> is just such a great bit. The voice by Joseph Gordon Levitt, yeah. Uh, the robot dog that's just delivering packages, like yeah. just the weird things that are happening on this island uh, are, are very amusing for me. Uh, again, echoing Janelle Monet, uh, Batista is, uh, I'm glad to see uh, one professional wrestler have a great acting career. <laughs> yes. Um, and and Batista's just knocking it out of the park, I think, every time he, he gets on screen. He's the uh, best, in my opinion, he's the best professional oh, yeah. wrestler turned actor oh. by, by a lot. Yeah. So yeah, all of that I'll echo um, again, kind of continuing to play, I think with these genre tropes in different ways than knives out. So as not to be a carbon copy of the original film, I think does that. And I do think that does begin to lead to that indulgence. Uh, Joe was missing too. Cause that was something I noted. And I was even thinking the other night, it, it takes so long to get to that moment Daniel mentioned and it's come on, uh, you know, and, and there's like, it feels like there's a lot of like some of the cameos, some of that stuff, like it, it feels very cutesy that I, I don't know how well it settles with me. And, and even in the resolution, I, I wasn't feeling as, and kind of jumping ahead here uh, into some of the other stuff, but the, the resolution I don't think works as well for me as it does in the original film. So there are things like that, that, that hamper it. Uh, I'd be interested on a rewatch to your point uh, to see what might work better. You know, the, the first one, I think I was a little cooler on, but in rewatches I warmed up and I don't know if I'll have that same response here. Cause I do think the ensemble is a little weaker. I do think it is a little cuter and self more self-indulgent. So some of those things are tweaked, not to a, you know, degree at which I will turn it off. But I, you can see those cracks a lot more here, I think. I'll be honest. I had the time of my life watching this movie. Um, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd, and I don't regret that. Here's what I'll say, though. As I've thought about it, I actually admired the pacing. Mostly because structurally, uh, Arthur, as you pointed out, I was like, oh, it's not just doing, okay, we're going to open with the murder and kind of dive into it. It's like almost more like a murder on the Orient Express where you're with these characters and then the murder occurs and unfolds. That said, it does really take a long time to get there. I will also say related to the reveal, uh, we'll talk about it more in spoilers. I was very satisfied, but also 
it wasn't very surprising. I'm curious about how well it's going to hold up on repeat. It does feel like it takes a long time to get going. It does feel a little long. There is a very lengthy flashback sequence later in the film. I found uh, to be really compelling because of the performers that are involved in those flashbacks, just seeing uh, angles to the story that we hadn't considered and what a certain actor or actress does, uh, I found this to be super fun, but it did really grind the movie to a halt just so we could pick it back up like 25 minutes later. So how was that going to work for me in retrospect? I don't know. I can tell you for sure I didn't mind it at all on the first viewing. Lastly, I would say this movie is definitely more self-indulgent. I can't disagree with you on that. And I do think that is going to really drive certain people crazy in the same way that I also enjoyed Ambulance earlier this year, which is Michael Bay when he discovers drones. And it's and, and you know, <laughs> is it the best movie? I don't think so. But did I have a great time? Yeah, I, I loved it when there was a drone shot circling around Jake John Hall talking in a warehouse on a phone. Yeah, <laughs> like and and they, that's just a me thing, you know, and that's that's why I think it gets a little more subjective. But if you don't like that stuff or there's certain things about Ryan Johnson that irk you, well, be prepared. It's. <laughs> Uh, cranked up to an 11 in this movie. So without providing any spoilery details, I kind of already played my hand, show my hand here. I was generally satisfied with the resolution. We're not, obviously we're not going to specify what happens or what it is, but I'm just curious with it being a whodunit, the reveal is obviously a huge component to what makes a movie, uh, a movie like this work or not work. Uh, Arthur, what did you think? Yeah, I, I think the mystery reveal stuff uh, in that, you know, clue regard, um, works for me. I, I think I'd probably side, um, you know, we were looking at the promotional image, uh, waiting for this, the movie to start. And my wife was like, well, who do you think it is? You know, we each picked a couple people and, you know, it's easy to pick correct. I think if you, if you're paying attention. Um, so I, you know, and I think that's still all fun and satisfying cause I want to see how now it plays out. Right. But for me, the, the, the actual resolution at the end of this film, where our characters are, that's what is not really working for me as much, I, I think. I, I think where the original film ends, final image, kind of how things are distributed, that doesn't feel as satisfying here. Yeah. And I think that's what what's kind of holding me back on it. Yeah. Man, we're going to talk about that in spoilers because there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with, with how things wrap up. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, so I, I, I think it does. Um, and then maybe a little bit some, it, it, it's satisfying mostly because like, <laughs> again, it, it, to avoid the spoilers, the, 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 the who did it and the who done it is actually kind of like surprisingly obvious, but it's not entirely about that. It's, it's more about how and the why and, and, and what goes into that to, um, to piggyback up Arthur's, Arthur's comments. But, um, the other thing it does is it's like, it already knows like knives out now has established kind of a formula and. Ryan Johnson is very aware of that formula to Joe's point. He might be so aware of that formula that he is going out of his way to mess with it and tweak it and do something different that again, I think it it's fine here and it works here, but I do question the longevity of this series because I don't know. I feel like we're going to get into to, to weird territory where we're either going to say the same things or he's going to go out of his way to avoid, you know, kind of treading the same ground that it's going to just make a, a progressively clunkier. Uh, mystery. I hope not. Um, it's it's a rare moment of me being kind of pessimistic for a series future, but um, I could see that happening. Um, but I think Ryan Johnson is very aware of what what you know some of the the machinations that are going to run in our head, what we're going to 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 try and discern and perceive. 
Um, and I think he can play with those preconceived notions in a pretty satisfying way. Um, but again, I'm not super optimistic that he can sustain the momentum or sustain his momentum. But for right now, I do think it's, it's satisfying, just not super buttoned up, you know, like, like knives out and like re visiting knives out very recently. Like that film is extremely, I forgot how much I liked it. Um, until seeing it again, this one, I am going to watch it again. Um, but, but I do wonder, you know, how, how well it'll hold up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I, I guess at what point can you be so self-aware that you become, you, you start parodying yourself. Exactly. Right. And I think yes. he's tiptoeing up to that line in this film and he's got at least one more he's going to make. So when, when do you become Kevin Smith? Uh, <laughs> M. Night yes. Shyamalan. It's, ooh, man, hadn't thought about M. Night Shyamalan with Brian Johnson. That's a scary comparison. I, I don't hope we don't go there. Uh, <laughs> Joe, how satisfying would you say the sort of reveal or, or resolution to the mystery is? Yeah, I think I just agree with everything that's been said already. Uh, and I think one of the things that may have worked better is if he had spent a little bit more time developing the characters beyond what their caricatures are, because they all pretty much stay within those bounds. They're not really fleshed out at all. So when you've decided who it is, it isn't really a surprise when it is that person, because no one really has any surprising characteristics or like any other layers uh, that are being peeled back. So, yeah, I, I maybe if... I don't know. There's just so many. I go into like development mode where I'm like, what if we had done like maybe another pass on this, cut some of the first two acts back and like spent some time actually like making these characters better. And then maybe we would have understood, I don't know, or been surprised in some way if there was like a soft side to one of them or something. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Maybe I I I think it wasn't surprising. It's perfectly satisfying. I really like final sequence in in terms of how it looks i think it looks great it's shot in a really fun way looks gorgeous so yeah i i mean it was fine it was fine <laughs> yeah i wonder too there was you know again i uh, uh listeners are probably tired of me saying it i i'm trying to avoid playing armchair filmmaker because uh, i'm not ryan johnson and definitely cannot make a movie as good as ryan johnson i do wonder though and you're when you're thinking about you know choosing to if he had chosen to spend a little more time with the ensemble there were a couple of opportunities within the film i mean we we get a flash i will be very vague there is a flashback sequence in which you understand how these people are all connected in which they maybe could have put a couple of scenes little couple of scenes to develop you know give them a little something or at least some a couple of them a little little more maybe i don't know it's a good point though um i like i said i i i kind of discussed I was kind of so-so on the reveal thematically. I think it provides an op- really interesting conversation that we'll get to. The one thing I'll say, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, I loved, and some people might hate this too, whenever you're watching the the first scene where they all arrive on his island, and you just know that they're saying things that are c- going to come back. They're having all these like cross-talks, and people are cutting each other off, and it's the fun, what's the red herring, what's not. I... I love that stuff. I mean, it's a little pointed. You can tell that's what they're doing, 
that might turn some people off, but I, I, it's like catnip. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what do you mean? Uh, Dave Batista is saying this about what? Because uh, then sometimes they, they, they throw a huge like red herring. They make a big deal about this thing that actually is totally inconsequential. I just I don't know. I love it. Who don't answer fun? Uh, letter grade for Glass Onion. Uh, and uh, Daniel, I'll start with you. Yeah, I'm feeling. So I will say. The point Joe made earlier about it being very self-indulgent and being a commentary on the rich, yet being like utterly extravagant in of itself. Um, Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Damien Chazelle, can you guys wait? Can you guys wait for his new movie where he did <laughs> Babylon? No. <laughs> it it does feel that feels gross. Absolutely. Um, and I can't understate that. But personally, I did really like this film. It probably is definitely. <laughs> I haven't seen enough. I would say it's probably in my top 10 of the year as of right now. Um, maybe could get booted, but I'm, I'm going to give it an A minus. I feel pretty confident about that. All right. Daniel Bokemper going with the A minus. Joe Light, what letter grade would you give? Glass I gave it a two out of five on my letterbox. We should follow each other, by the way. Um, We're not following each other? No. I'll plug it at the end. Um, I think I think that would be like. A forty percent. So is that like a D? I guess that's a that's a an F. Technically, it's an F, but you know, <laughs> the, the, listen, it's it's listen. The, the scale, in my opinion, has always been off. Like why? Like that you're saying most people fail. Okay, sixty sixty five percent's a failure. Yeah, Arthur Gordon. Yeah, I'm probably coming in at a, I think a B plus is where I'm sitting right now. Nice. I am uh, gonna go with an A straight, not A plus. I I really would reserve the A plus for the rewatch. I again, I'm. Fairly com- more confident than not that I'm going to feel the runtime a lot more the second go around. It would be my would be my guess, uh, but uh, I'm going to stick with an A for now. And uh, as a little bit of a follow up for listeners, if they either are interested in Glass Onion or maybe they're not, and you want to recommend a different film, novel, television show, video game, what alternate media recommendation would you give to listeners who you know related to Glass Onion, Arthur Gordon? Yeah, so I've got a couple of books here. Uh, I've got uh, two from Ruth Ware, uh, who's got a series of different just kind of suspense mysteries. She's been compared to uh, Agatha Christie some. So I've picked her two most, uh, I think, Agatha Christie books. Uh, The first is Woman in Cabin 10, uh, which is a locker room mystery on a boat. Uh, So very uh, Hercule Poirot uh, vibes there. Uh, The other one is very relevant. It's called One by One, uh, and it is a tech upstart uh, where politics and people are being uh, usurped are snowed into a Swiss Alps resort and people start getting killed and trying to figure out who the uh, murderer is. And she, uh, she does this fun thing, switching back and forth between two main characters and playing with the narrator uh, stuff. So that's cool. Uh, And then I watched uh, see how they run a few weeks ago and I really enjoyed see how they run. Uh, I think it's another one. that's a little uh, too cutesy, uh, but I think it does some fun stuff and I watched it uh, like one and a half times and really got a kick out of it. So unlike glass onion, it's only like 95 minutes or something like that. Uh, great recommend. I was going to throw that one out there as well. Uh, now playing on HBO Max, mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Bokemper. Yeah. So um, we've, I think all of us have mentioned um, uh, Ryan Johnson's feature length debut, Brick, uh, starring Joseph Gordon Levitt. I do want to mention that one more time. Um, definitely worth seeing. And you can see him without a Netflix budget, too, which is always kind of nice to get that more quaint look at a director. Um, in a year where we, in, well, I guess that's a year and a half where we have a ton of whodunits. Uh, one from earlier this year that I, I personally really, really enjoyed was uh, Helena Raines' um, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Uh, of course, the the Gen Z. who It's like marketed as like a horror film, but it's really a, it's like a whodunit mystery thriller. And then finally, this one's a little off the wall, but 
Um, there are a lot of cameos. There's a lot of really small appearances. There's a lot of illusions in this movie. Uh, one of them is to one of my favorite composers, Philip Glass. Uh, it's just subtle. I don't actually think he has anything to do with this movie. He's just he's just name dropped, really. I do want to at least make a recommendation to his memoir, Words Without Music. So if you're ever curious about uh, a composer's life um, and where that leads them and, and what that means and how he got to start on, you know, classic films, including uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands, uh, which has an excellent score. <laughs> Uh, for what it is, I uh, I cannot recommend, uh, again, Philip Glass's Words Without Music enough. Joe, what would you recommend? Yeah, my recommendation was going to be Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Um, I love that it's a female director. I love – I think that that film has much more to say about wealth and pop culture, how we're interacting with each other right now. I think that that's a much more capable movie than Glass Onion, so that was 100% going to be my recommendation. I, I love that movie. It's great. Very nice. Uh, we talked about that uh, as part of like a August movie review series. Uh, so listeners go check that out. Came out at the end of no, September 1st. Where we talked about August releases. Totally worth your time. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, another whodunit from this year. I was going to say see how they run. Great wa- recommend. Uh, Scream 5 also has some nods to Ryan Johnson without explicitly saying Ryan Johnson uh, in the movie. But I, I thought it was um, a really clever that's a franchise that I'm constantly like, I don't know how they're going to do a new one. And I'm saying that again for the next one that's coming out next year. I'm like, I don't know how they're going to do it. But uh, this new one that came out, they I, I really thought it was a home run mostly uh, in the way it kind of um, provided a lot of commentary on fan cultures. And, and not only, you know, the, the original movie was commenting on pop art, the pop culture obsessed generation from the nineties. Well, like we were like what an entire generation and a half removed from that. And it's people who have sort of like turned this into sort of a religion. What does that look like? And how does the movie kind of deal with that? I thought that was a really interesting take. So highly recommend that. Um, and, uh, yeah, brothers bloom. That's probably the one that no one, like that's the one film for Ryan Johnson. I have discovered most people miss, uh, because it's not his first one. It's not brick and it's not as inventive as brick. And then looper came out later and it uh, had a much bigger budget than his first two films, including a larger marketing budget brothers bloom and scream five. All right, listeners, if you do not want to be spoiled on glass onion, go ahead and tune out. Now I spoke in the car about the hole at the center of this donut and what you and Holland did that fateful night seems at first glance to fill that hole perfectly a donut hole in a donut's hole but we must look a little closer and when we do we see the donut hole has a hole in its center it is not a donut hole but a smaller donut with its own hole topic number one i want to dive into just i want to dig into this question is Ryan Johnson a contemporary Agatha Christie, or is he drinking a little bit too much of his own Kool-Aid? So, big question there. Structurally, I, as I noted, I thought this film took a very different approach to a mystery than Knives Out. So he has, he didn't just repeat what he did last time. He did something different. How do Johnson's films mirror or maybe pay homage to the pioneers of whodunit? Because no matter how smart we think his films are or not, he's not doing this if there wasn't other whodunits who've done it better and first. Ooh, I can take a, a quick crack at it. And then hopefully people who are more qualified can <laughs> cover my blind spots. Um, the, I, I think it's so like Agatha Christie is an institution. I don't think Ryan Johnson is quite there. Um, I don't, and I want to be clear. I don't think he no, actually thinks and, he's there either, but yeah, I just, 
you know. Right. No, I know. But they're yeah, the, the, the conversation is I don't think it's um, unreasonable to cite him as, as being capable of writing a, um, an adequate whodunit. And, and hopefully he has many more in the bank, too. But um, but I do question that <laughs> a little bit. But I think I think one thing that's just solid um, and consistent is it's the characters. I, I really love the, the the cast of characters we get between both the original Knives Out and this film. Um, I think some of them, just because I favor the, the, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Shannon and Tony Collette. I mean, I just, I just like those actors. So I'm like, maybe that's why I kind of like the characters a little bit more knives out, but here they're still really good. Especially Kate Hudson's birdies. Uh, there's like a few moments that they get a little crazy, but there's like one moment where she just screams, what is reality? And it's like, (laughs) I don't know. It just, it, it got me. I, uh, I popped for that, uh, pretty well, but I, I think it's the characters. It's absolutely everyone. And there's no inherently obvious per or there is, but it's like too obvious. So then you kind of question that, but they're all really equal, equally capable. And you train, you just like cling to every di- piece of dialogue, every shot, just trying to find the, the one thing that's going to, you know, be the, the needle that threads the entire mystery. And then, um, subsequently, uh, unravels it. And, I think that's the other thing is just knives out is so like really rewatchable. Um, I, I, I have high hopes that the glass onion will be too, because I'm still intrigued by it even after the mystery is over. And I think that's what ultimately makes a good mystery is that it doesn't just lose all of its luster immediately after it's cracked wide open. It, it, it gives you a reason to come and see it again. So even though the glass onion is, is shattered, you know, we're still going to have fun piecing it back together, I think. And I think that's what makes a pretty strong mystery. Um, time will tell on his longevity or whether or not, again, knives out as a concept um, is is going to stand the test of time. But mm, it's weird. I'm like, high hopes, not high hopes. I hope he hasn't just put himself into a corner where it's like, you know, what are we going to get next? Uh, trillionaire. And that's just, just going to get like increasing like escalation of what these movies uh, fundamentally are about to the point they lose themselves. Or um, is it going to be a a just this this well of of thing like Agatha Christie was so many. There are other things he could talk about other mm-hmm. than just rich people. He <laughs> could. There's plenty of other things happening in the world that I think lend themselves to potentially compelling mysteries. And hopefully he believes that. We'll see. But glass I can't wait for the sequel is gonna be like the golden titty of knives out mystery. <laughs> I mean they did name oh they cleverly name dropped the title I know in this one. Yeah. I knew I knew <laughs> uh but I, I think Daniel to your point though the characters are a big one and the the plotting I think a good mystery is rewatchable because it's the first time you're watching it because you're trying to you're just like along for the ride you're trying to piece it together and the reveal is like wow but when you watch it again hopefully that's where it sort of highlights some of the commentary um, that the the story is trying to to highlight or or underscore. Um, are there any thoughts on on how this film pays tribute or homage to classic whodunits? I mean, those are probably the two big. I mean, obviously, uh, extravagant homes, exotic locales, I think, are a big part of that. The setting as well, flamboyant characters outside of just your main detective, um, but just having a whole cast of characters who everybody has you know a, a motive, uh, which becomes a fun little plot point uh, here. Uh, as they're playing their little game of Clue uh, running around. Um, but I think, you know, where the first Knives Out was much more of a kind of a locked room. How could this have happened? There's secret passages. Kind of feels a little Edgar Allan poe as well. Yeah. Um, and then I think this, especially, you know, just months removed from Death on the Nile, uh, to give us something much more 
uh, in the world, exotic and in traveling to Greece and beautiful landscapes. Uh, there's some, I think, escapism in that as well to be along with them. Yeah, no, I think that's a good comparison. Uh, noteworthy that I'm pretty sure Death on the Nile largely, not 100, percent but largely used CG backdrops. That this movie did not, and <laughs> at least to my eye, it was very noticeably uh, different. Although it makes me think, third movie, we got to learn the origin story of the accent, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just because uh, you know the origin the of the mustache. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Joe, anything you want to add about just sort of how this film either pays homage to or riffs on that the, the classic genre tropes that have been established by other writers? I mean, I think everyone has said it already. I do want to ask, like, what did y'all think of Death on the Nile? I know this isn't about that, but, like, what did y'all think of that movie? I had low expectations, so I was pleasantly surprised with the three-star movie. I didn't like the look of it. It was very distracting for me. Yeah. (laughs) And none of the characters are that interesting. Uh, Yeah. Talk about the uh, – can we talk about the downgrade – arguably – there's an argument to be made about the the cast in this film versus uh, Knives Out – I think it's almost undeniable that the cast downgrade from a murder on the Orient Express to death on the Nile is huge step down. Joe, what did you think <laughs> no, <laughs> of death on the Nile? I will say that I had more fun watching death on the Nile than I did watching glass onion. I think because I don't know, like I, I, I just laughed more, even though it was unintentional in, in death on the Nile. So I, I feel like that was a more enjoyable movie watching experience for me. Um, yeah, I I think I left this movie thinking about like The Thin Man and I I just love those movies so much and just feeling a little frustrated again about the characters in in my opinion like not being as as fun to watch in the relationships and things like that just cuz something like The Thin Man does it so well. I suggest that Benoit Blanc needs a dog partner now in the third. <laughs> oh my god, please. Yes. Oh my god. That would be fantastic. He's got to have a. He's got to have like another companion. I do like that he's paired up with someone. <laughs> or Paddington, I guess. Paddington. Paddington. Oh, <laughs> Paddington. Man, it, whoever it is, I hope if it's a dog, it's like he's got the same southern draw, and it's just like bark. <laughs> bow ba- wow. Bow <laughs> wow. Okay, you'll you'll know we've gone too far with the third one when Nick Cage is announced to be a part of the cast of the next movie. <laughs> Okay, so actually, I think something, uh, Arthur, you you highlight, uh, you noted uh, here in the spoiler section, and Joe actually mentioned in her review, was the setting, using modern-day events as a backdrop. This movie takes place in a world where the pandemic happens, which, personally, I find a little more refreshing compared to... it. It's that weird thing where you're like, I don't want to think about it, but I'd rather you guys be honest like, and show us that versus some, a lot of the things we've seen lately where they just it never happened. It's, it's all fine. Do you think Johnson used sort of the backdrop of the, the pandemic? Well, uh, why or why not? And also does it add anything to the story or is it just sort of set dressing? Joe. I mean, I think that was one thing that I, it's barely, it, it is barely an element of this film. It's just basically mentioned in the first act. So I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting to do. I, and again, I really like that Among Us bit just because I, everyone was stuck inside on Zoom and, and that was our only interaction. And so I, it felt like a funny little bit and I hadn't ever seen that specifically in any film. So it, it was a nice little pop culture nod. Um, does it add anything to the film? No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think is another problem I had with a lot of the things in the film was like, that's there. And then we move on and it's not really for anything or doing anything. Can you provide another example? Oh, um, Hugh Grant. <laughs> Why is he in this movie for five seconds? 
Um, Ethan Hawke also. <laughs> yeah, well, at least, yeah, he does something. It's like Hugh Grant's answering the door. So it's just like they had him one day and he agreed. So I don't I, know. I will say Ryan Johnson did. It doesn't bother me as much, but I'm not a member of these communities, so I'm not going to go dive too deep into it. But I do know he did the thing where he's like, oh, yeah, actually, Benoit Blanc's gay. And you do see Hugh Grant answer the door. Yeah. It's sort of implied, but they definitely don't dive into it whatsoever. Um, again, doesn't bother me, but I, there's certainly a lot of argument that that's, that's worse than no representation. Yeah, commit uh, to it is yeah, what I, I would prefer. Right. Yeah. yeah. So otherwise, I was just like sort of throwing up my hands and being like, why? Why? <laughs> like, I would rather them develop that into something than just have it be a gag. And I think, Arthur, you said that, too, about a lot of the cameos. I feel like yeah. I felt that. It felt like Austin Powers almost at points to me where they're yeah. just, like, throwing it in there, and it's funny, and now we're moving on. Well, so. It's like this weird referential cultural thing we're in mm. right now where everything has to have Easter eggs or yeah. you know, yeah. something. Just so, ha, ha, there's the thing. There's the Waldo. Um, I mean, the, I think the Angela Lansbury thing makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of a passing of the torch mystery moment. That makes sense. But, yeah, that uh, – I, I think the whole – COVID setting, it's obviously a great way to get them on the island. And it echoes that feeling of, oh, I hate it being locked up and I wanted to get out and hang out with my friends. And it gets us there. But that after the first act, it's a non sequitur. I mean, especially yeah. with their the magical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about no, it. No, it no, like, no pineapples in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, was that Ethan Hawke from Moon Knight? Because he's very much dressed. He like does have a similar look. Or what's his name? Guys, knives out set in the uh, MCU. MCU. Yeah, Ooh. there it is. <laughs> which is also Confirmed. which also thanks to multiverse is also set in the Star Wars universe. Ryan Johnson bringing it all together. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yes. The joiner <laughs> of franchises. Uh, no, I, I I think I'd echo you. It it's one of those things, and, and not every. I don't think everything has to have meaning. I think sometimes it's okay to have a fun nod. I think Arthur, you highlighted where it worked a lot better. I like the, the Hugh Grant and Ethan Hawke honestly were a little obnoxious because it's like. Oh my gosh! I love that they're here. Oh wait, they're gone. It's their, their cameo really doesn't even mean anything. It's just like it's it's literally just the Leo, uh, the meme of Leo from uh, Once Upon a Time in mm-hmm. Hollywood, where he's sitting. He's like, oh, 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 I see, I know that. Mm-hmm. And like it doesn't it, even the, the actor themselves doesn't add anything at, at all. Um, I did like though, for example, how we saw how each of them were coping with the pandemic a little differently. The reason I liked that was. Pandemic was crazy, guys. It was wild. And even though, obviously, there were certain characters who I thought had were handling it in a very detestable way, it was, I thought it was kind of, it felt, it brought me into to it in a way where I was like, yeah, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different groups who, for some reason, know this guy, and they're all doing things a little different. This guy's a YouTuber. This person's holding ragers at their house like nothing's going on. Like, uh, I, I did, it did add a certain level of, like, uh, I, I can relate to this. Um, that specifically that piece, mostly in the opening piece where everyone's opening the box, I thought was kind of a nice touch, but yeah, I think one thing that I, I, I guess I like about it, but it ultimately I would agree. It's kind of a superficial like point. It's just a, to, it, it did feel like it just makes it topical for the sake of being topical. Mm-hmm. But I do think we get a lot more of a present Benoit Blanc in this film. And we also get a very giddy Benoit Blanc who's just like excited and having the backdrop of the pandemic. I mean, he, he basically says it out loud himself. Uh, when he's in the bathtub playing among us is that he's, he needs something. He's giddy. He's been locked up. He's got to do something. And I think it helps establish that this is why Benoit Blanc is a little more like involved in this film. I, I think that establishes. And I, and I like how that manifests like it, you know, when he basically ruins the, 
uh, <laughs> the murder mystery that uh, oh, Edward Norton's I, Miles. I actually loved that piece. Yes, um, <laughs> but he like solves it immediately, and he's like, "What do I?" Or no, he's Who like, "You win? say prize, you say win as a prize, like an iPad." And uh, it comes back, and that that was good. I I liked that, but especially how quickly he solves the like the fake murder mystery. Um, I don't know. I, I feel it was like written by Julian Flynn. Julian Flynn, yeah, yes, and if, well, not a good investment apparently. Well, okay, can we, um, can we, actually, can we pause on that too? Yeah, because uh, I'm curious if it's a similar thing. Were you guys more? Did you find the the, the references funny, or were they like the Easter eggs where you rolled your eyes? Because there was a lot of like the Jared Leto's, I, like all of them. It was Jared like, Leto, Jeremy Renner's hot sauce. Hot sauce. Uh, the Serena Williams was a uh, actually. And I love her so much. I'm just yeah. like, I hope you got paid. <laughs> I think the Renner joke is funny because that feels like a very Renner thing that would have happened. Yes. Uh, the Leto thing I could care less about. Yeah. Yeah. That one felt weird just because they were trying to like cash in on like it. I also wonder too if there's like this, you know, when you live in Hollywood and actually Joe, you've lived in California. Like I know sometimes like when you're in quotes in the industry, there's like all those stories people hear about the other celebrities that mm. they kind of sneak into scripts and stuff like that. Um, I'm like, I'm wondering if that's, if that's like, I'm not in the club for the Jared Leto joke, for example. Right. It, mm -hmm. it felt like kind of slapped on, but maybe I just don't get the joke. Yeah. I think like as a, as a way to build, if you needed any more of it, if I guess it wasn't apparent by the, the Gresham Island with a Banksy doc that, is almost entirely un non-functional. Um, like, I, I guess if you needed another way to build that extravagance a bit more, but like it does like get gaudy fast. Like, and, 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 and maybe and it's kind it, of the point, but and, like, and maybe it's there to tell you more about miles than anything. Yeah. Um, which is something we'll get to in a second. Um, on the note of miles, uh, we can, let's talk about the reveals more specifically. And it's going to segue into, I think just kind of diving into themes, which is okay. So miles is revealed to be the murderer. Is this satisfying? Like, not, and not only like the answer, but also like, does you think it it puts it, it closes the loop on the story in a satisfying way? Mm -hmm. Miles is the guy who brings him there, but he's actually the one who has killed Janelle Monae's Andy technically off camera. Yeah, Arthur, was this like a satisfying reveal for you um, in terms of not only like just the the reveal that he's the killer, but any other reveals the, the film has because there are a lot of them. Yeah, again, I mean. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you look at that promo image, there's Ed Norton and Kate Hudson. For me, those are the two prime suspects, I think, just from a casting standpoint yeah. and understanding some of that, how that works. And so uh, at that point, it became, OK, how do we get to the resolution? And I think, you know, what's so smart about Knives Out is we see what happened in that room. Like we are privy to most of the information except for a key detail here we don't even realize what's being investigated until, you know, so I think those reveals are working. I, I think what kills some of that reveal is that extended period to get to that flashback, which is so long to catch us back up. And so I, I think the actual mystery, those reveals I enjoyed. I was like, oh, okay, that makes, you know, I like how they're playing with these ideas, these tropes, these kind of settings to switch it up from the original and and not just repeat that. And, and again, and we're probably going to get into it, but it, it's really the only reveal is I, I, I think I like that Benoit Blanc can't save the day. Yeah, I, I think there's something about that I like that he's done what he can do and he knows he's been bested in a way. So I, I think I like that. It's just where it goes from there. 
where I'm, I'm not as certain about. Joe, I know this wasn't your cup of tea. Um, in terms of a reveal, like what maybe uh, unpack it a little bit. What about it was more frustrating or disappointing to you about it? Was it because was it, it was too obvious? Was it to eat the rich? What like what what about it was an issue? Yeah, I think it was exactly what you said. It's to eat the rich. Isn't Mark Zuckerberg a bad person, which is essentially what he's saying. Um, and I'm not against those ideas. I just think that it is a little bit disingenuous coming from him. And again, it might be an issue where he just, he, he, no one told him where it was maybe missing a little bit because he wasn't noted. So yeah, I think, I think that's the only thing that I, I didn't like about where it ended up. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. Cause like I can go along for the ride and I can enjoy it. And I really liked that when we think that Janelle Monet's character has died, I was like, oh, I'm out. Like, mm-hmm. I, she's the only thing, like, keeping me in this film. So I was really happy to go back and see, oh, we get to see more of her now because she's a twin and she's not actually dead because it's hot sauce. Like, I was just very relieved in in the third act that mm-hmm. she was not gone because, she, again, she's, like, the only thing tethering me to to any sense of enjoyment in the film. Um, so to see, I, and I do agree. I I liked that she was given the moment to sort of break everything Mm -hmm. and destroy the Mona Lisa. Um, and it wasn't like the detective necessarily saving the day or, or proving how smart he was. So I, I did like that. I, I think it's just, again, mostly an issue of not really caring that much about the characters because I don't really know them that well. And those actors, have the cast really does have to do a lot of heavy lifting mm-hmm. uh, for teach you to buy in um, to, the, to the characters. Um, I would argue they succeed, but also they're definitely sketched a little thinner uh, perhaps than the first film. Uh, Daniel, uh, any thoughts about the reveals you want to add? Yeah. I, I mean, I think overall, um, they're, they're fairly satisfying and I absolutely agree with Joe. I was very sad initially when uh, Janelle Minnie's first character dies, but then when you come back with Helen, uh, Andy's twin sister, that's, that was rewarding. I feel like maybe the movie should have perhaps like opened up on um, Andy. Well, not Andy, not Andy, Helen, not actually dead. The, the murder, not murder. I feel like that might've been a better place for the film to start thereabouts mm. and then work its way up to it. And that would have made it a little more, interesting and compelling and a little more like maybe not necessarily more interesting, but at least like structurally a little better, I think. And we would have at least had the murder out the gate. And then we, I, I don't know, it would have made it a little more engaging along the way rather than this huge exposition that then has a hard reset for more exposition. Like it, it just, yeah, I kind of, uh, but I still think it's satisfying. I still think it's, it's, it's weaved pretty well and cleverly. Um, maybe borderline self-indulgent, but like, I, I, I do think it's, it's still satisfying and it still kind of earns its conclusion. Um, but yeah, it is weird that, and I do like, I don't think it's a coincidence that this film is going to come out on Netflix. Um, and it's a film about a completely disconnected billionaire, pretty much a year to the day 
um, from a film that features a lot of disconnected people in positions of power, including a tech mogul and what I'm referring to is Adam McKay's uh, Don't Look Up, which again features a, a billionaire who's completely out of touch. And and while I like that trope, it is kind of like how much of this are we going to get that, you know, we see something different with it because ultimately Miles, um, Edward Norton's character, Miles, is – that's the other thing. And that's like, yeah, we can make fun of them and call them stupid and jackasses at the end of the day. But kind of one thing I was kind of thinking about at the film's conclusion is I'm like, Miles, he's like in a lot of trouble, I guess, but it still doesn't seem like it still felt kind of inconsequential. For me, that's the thing is at the end of the day, if you sit and think about these characters, none of them are going to lose anything. Mm-mm. Not no. significant. No, I would actually yeah. argue, I would actually argue this. Most of the supporting casts are actually going to come out of this feeling better because they don't have to worry about him. They have leverage over him, essentially. Yeah, And he'll bounce back. Yeah, exactly. that's the kind of guy he is. Right. And I think for me, that's the, the unsatisfying thing about it is she hasn't avenged the death. Like, maybe for her, she's got one over on him, but... It, she foils his plan, but there are no tangible consequences of... Because like you say... The guy's going to come back, right? But there are no tangible legal consequences that says yeah. you killed her, you're in prison, or you, you, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it kind of want to ha- it wants to have its cake and eat it too a little bit because you're supposed to feel like Helen is um, vindicated yeah. at the end of the film, and they position her like it's almost not shot for shot, but it's framed very similarly to um, how Marta is presented mm-hmm. in, in Knives Out, but like Marta. Like she inherits everything. I mean, there's and she, a power shift. Yes, yes. In that final shot of her sipping the coffee and it's like my house, my rules, my coffee. Um, I love that shot and how just where it ends um, in the original Knives Out. And this, it kind of tries to to recreate that a little bit, but it does not – it doesn't have same, the same impact. I don't want to mm-hmm. say what Helena does isn't like, isn't like good and kind of – like it's still satisfying, but it doesn't like – yeah, when you start to think about it more, it's like it's like momentarily way. satisfying. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a little bit of instant gratification. Whereas, mm-hmm. like with the original lives out, like Marta's victory is yeah, well, because it's definitive. She gets the wealth. Exactly. Right? It's a state, and they're all looking up at her and like relying on her. And then you have the inverse where everyone's like up on the near the glass onion, not necessarily looking down. They're all kind of facing still towards Miles, but they're kind of being left to this burning building and they can deal with the garbage fire how they want but it, and that, that just doesn't feel as powerful well but like and that's what i'm saying though yeah. i don't like it's it's clear to me that most of them i mean and this is kind of why i want to i'd love to dive into the wealth conversation a little bit and, and just the power dynamics around wealth it does not seem like any of these people actually like miles at all no it is purely purely for financial gain so if anything, how permanent is this? Again, because he's still got lots of money. They're liberated from his grasp if they so choose, right? Because they have sort of some blackmail. They can accuse him of things, which isn't great. But again, when you have that much money, it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, I wasn't exactly sure why they had that shift in that moment either, other than the building had just blown up behind them. Like watching the end mm-hmm. of the movie, I was like, well, why now are they suddenly like, I saw the napkin. Cool. You perjured yourself in in court. I'll go to bat for it in that I think the thing was all of them knew that the the fuel source was a terrible idea. And whenever they were actually a part of like, oh, yeah, that thing we thought it might do, we know it does that now. Mm -hmm. So we want to keep you from implementing this elsewhere. So, again, it's sort of shallow. It, it, it is a little bit because they knew that already. They did. They yeah. knew that, but it's a little different when you experience it. Like you it. see it, yeah. You but don't. at the same time, that's not well, – from a narrative perspective, that's not the most satisfying answer. Well, right? it does definitely speak to generally, especially 
I don't think it's a stretch to say like the extremely wealthy or those who are in a position of power, they genuinely do not change without consequence. And this was maybe that in motion a little bit as they see the direct consequence of clear, I believe is the name of the mm-hmm. film. So I wanted to call it cat nine because it just reminded me of the, the, the thing that could freeze over the earth and a uh, Kurt Vonnegut's crack uh, cat's cradle, but mm-hmm. it's uh it's not that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's just seeing those like obvious repercussions, just speak to your point, Caleb. It's it, yeah, I get it, but yeah, it's still a little bit weaker than I, and that, that brings me to the idea of the, 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 the archetype, uh, the billionaire genius. Do you guys think this film adds anything to that archetype in any way? Or is this just Edward Norton and Ryan Johnson doing the riff on it? Yeah. I, I kind of like how it miles himself is, I mean, it does play in the tech billionaire. I went into a little bit on, you know, the, and I cannot think of the character's name from don't look up, but the, the really disconnected Tim cook, um, analogous, uh, whatever that character's name was. Uh, the Mark Rylance character. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, miles is kind of the antithesis to Harlan Thromby, Christopher Plummer's character from the first one in that, I mean, Harlan is deliberately less wealthy than than miles because he he only has books everything he's done he's create like he is created he is i mean with the exception of editor and publicist and other people who i'm forgetting that uh, have to do with the distribution of books but at the end of the day he did write the stories he's at least like responsible i guess in that way for his wealth which maybe makes it feel um different and then everyone who's leaning on him it's direct heirs and they all want like a separate piece be it his house be it his continued wealth be it the rights to to sign off his um to turn his uh books into films and video games and TV series. Um, like, like they're all very leaning on him. Whereas miles in a, in a roundabout way, he doesn't really bring anything to the table except charisma. And that's enough to become this, you know, tech mogul, but he's really just this joiner. It's everyone else, even, um, even uh, Duke, Batista's character who has at least some talent. They've got something that they kind of initially rise, bring miles up to the point where he can then, go crazy with it and also exploit, you know, um, his business partner, who's actually the actual genius, uh, Andy Janelle Monet's character. But I, I think that, that, that kind of parallel, how he's not really self-made, he's made by everyone around him. Whereas, you know, sounds like a real billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm saying, and, and he totally, and in, in that way, he totally seems like the kind of person who would be, I mean, he's superficial enough to have all of these really dumb, gaudy things, the the dong that's composed by Philip Glass and then voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I, I, I think like that establishes that he is, you know, very superficial. And when you're very like superficially built his wealth, he doesn't really, you know, whereas Harlan, he doesn't really care to expand his wealth that much in any way that he doesn't see fit, which is just writing. Whereas Miles is going to do whatever the hell is possible to do that. And he's probably petty enough to, I don't know, buy a social media platform. And then, you know, just, I, 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 I was, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up later and okay. I don't want to sell you down the rabbit hole, but I will say the fact that this movie came out mere weeks after Elon Musk purchased Twitter and seems to be he's destroying it so fast it almost seems as if he's intentionally doing it at this yeah. point maybe but it's just um I don't know I, I find the myth the the myth and, and I know folks like ourselves have seen this done a lot but the myth of like air quotes genius billionaires what makes a genius a genius and I th- I love that Benoit Blanc just calls him an idiot to his face because that's the thing just. The reality is people tell Elon Musk's get gets to where he's at running this platform to the ground because everyone around him tells him whatever he says is a great idea. I, I It does do it really well off the gate. I think like in the early film, you're get in the early portion of the film. You are getting like 
his ideas and he's like, and it's, uh, um, the character Lionel, the like lead engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's talking about, he's like, yeah, sometimes he throws things that are off the wall, but then you get, and it's like a piece of paper that just has like kids plus NFTs. And he's like, and it paid for this facility. And it's like, I don't, but like they're everyone who's involved is the ones attributing the value to that. It has nothing to do with, you know, correct. Right. Just this, this idiot ad libbing, <laughs> like whatever. He's like, Oh, this is two things that are important. Yeah. yeah broken clocks right twice a day. Exactly. That that's the one thing I did think was fun. Like they set up pretty early that this guy, you know, with Lionel's little thing there. And, and it's interesting because all the other scientists are pretty skeptical. Mm-hmm. Is he really this, talented you know and i think that's a really interesting dynamic that we don't really get back into but i think it's a fun early plant i think on a rewatch that would be a f- one of those things to look into uh, i do enjoy that there's this like homer simpson level of failing upwards to success stupidity yeah. about uh miles but i don't know that the movie does anything much with it because I, I mean i just watched nine to five recently and i mean it's a very similar thing there with uh heart right i mean he's another guy who is just luck his way upward because he's a guy uh, and, and he just takes other people's ideas and is able to run with them and manipulate people and mm-hmm. has that charisma uh, and, and the power. And, and that's really what miles is. So I don't know as far as presenting executives in movies that there's much new here with miles. There's not a single heat thing here that you actually did. You, you like, like Jillian Flynn set up your murder mystery you all these drinks, like everything here, you have paid someone else to do. You yourself ha- can't even, eh, much like myself, can't even say words accurately. You know, you just like make up words that sound right, but they're not. It's like, the reclamation of the disruptors. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that and I was like, what? And then uh, I am not going to lie. Back. And I know this is where it's like one of those crazy self indulgent things, but when he's like, ah, the sound of disrupt. Now that's disruption. I was like, when the house blew up, I was, I was down, <laughs> down for that. Joe, anything you want to add about just sort of the, the myth of the billionaire? Anything you can critique the film for being unoriginal? I'd- oh, no. I mean, I think, Daniel, I think you're doing like a lot of the legwork for him, <laughs> honestly. I think your character development that you just gave us is more than the film gives us. Mm-hmm. I think that you're you're yeah. helping it. And not, not to like discredit your, I, I think that you are doing an awesome job of looking at his character. Yeah. That's actually a good point because sometimes I'm like, Oh, cause I have all these other tropes and these preexisting things. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to build them on. And it's like, Michael's is the natural successor, but really Ryan Johnson himself isn't doing all that much, you know, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways to, to like make him a good architect. So I can't call him like the, the, the archetypal tech billionaire. And it is like, we are seeing a lot of them. And, uh, you know, even though I mentioned like, uh, don't look up a little bit, it, it's still like, that's, that is something we are getting a lot of now. Mm. This just like clearly disconnected billionaires to the point where it's like, God, and that's what I mean. That's why I'm kind of worried about the series future a little bit. Is just because it's like, is it is it just what else is there to set be said about, about about that the wealthy? And I think right. like for whodunits especially, it's nice to have some. Like when you have, it's very convenient for whodunit to have a character who has extreme wealth that's just planted into it and can be a kind of at the center of the mystery because then it's like easy for people to because it's capital and so they everyone has a, a tie to that capital and we've seen that twice now and and I, I it makes it hard for me to wonder well what else could we set up to where everyone is potentially involved and um you know that that would that would give them just such an easy connect but even when they have that inherent connection um to miles as all of these characters do it's not like 
again, they are kind of paper thin. I thought that played into them. Well, they're just dumb, mm. rich people. That was kind of my thought too. Yeah, but but, but like uh, even in, in the original Knives Out, like all of them are super wealthy, and some of them even do come off as disconnected. But there's still like depth there. Mm. The family dynamic in that group is a lot stronger than the friend group yeah. dynamic in this one, which is where I think Joe, to your point, like they, I do, I do agree they could have set that up a little better because in the first film we got flashbacks where it's just the family talking at holidays mm-hmm. and, and whatnot while and we get clues derived from that as well whereas this film there is a flashback but it's more of a montage being like back in high school this is how yeah. we met and it was fun versus actually developing that those relationships in those scenes at all yeah. and i also think about something like succession which is just only rich assholes but you still care about what they're doing mm-hmm. and i know it's a different setting and different tone and everything but I, I know it's possible, and I know there's interesting things to be said for those types of characters, and I just wish we would have gotten a little bit more than just the superficial look at it that we did. Yeah. No, I think it's a fair criticism. Ladies and gentlemen, that is our review of Glass Onion, A Knives Out Story. Again, the movie is opening in limited number of theaters starting today, Wednesday, November 23rd, for one week. And then it'll be on Netflix on December 23rd. It sounds like generally positive around the table with some reservations. All right, uh, I do want the listeners to to hear where they can keep up with you all and your work online. So we'll go around the table, starting with Arthur Gordon. Where can people follow you online? You can go over to Good Trash Media uh, and read stuff over there. Uh, you can find the Good Trash Genocast in your podcatcher of choice. Uh, you can follow us at Good Trash Media on Twitter. Daniel Bowkemper. Caleb Masters. Yes, you can find me on Twitter uh, at, at Daniel uh, underscore Bowkemper and then on Facebook at Daniel Bowkemper. Uh, find me. Uh, my upcoming review of uh, I, Brother Horn for World Literature Today, their year-end um, magazine issue is just around the corner. So check out the review there. Uh, go find my review of Weird on FlickAttack.com, uh, Weird, uh, the Weird Al Yankovic story, uh, co-written by Weird Al Yankovic himself and starring Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, and, of course, if you want to hear more of my thoughts on this film, there will be a uh, – there should be a written essay up around this time. Uh, go check it out. And read it in Benoit Blanc's voice, and it will be a lot more fun. On the cinematropolis.com. On the cinematropolis.com, of course. All right. And Joe Light, where can people follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Joe underscore Lightly. My letterbox is Jojo Binks one I had to look at it. It's all one word. Um, and my writing's on nofilmschool.com. Um, I've got some pretty fun interviews coming up. I just spoke with um, Lee Jung Jae who directed his first film of, of Squid Game fame. He's really awesome. Big fan of his. So that should be up pretty soon, I think. Check it out. No Film School. I love uh, – you're just killing on the interviews because I, I saw you did an uh, interview with the Barbarian director a couple weeks back. Uh, oh, I did uh, with the actor who was, was the actor? The mother. mother. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, that's even better, actually. <laughs> he's really nice. Oh, man. Uh, again, a different podcast, but Barbarian, such a treat. And, uh, again, at this time, point in time, uh, likely on Twitter, at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Joe, I'm glad you brought up Letterboxd because uh, for, for many months I promised listeners that I would update my handle so it's consistent. It's no longer CMasters91 on Letterboxd. I signed up for Pro because I have to to change your, your name. Uh, and so, but also there's a bunch of really great perks. I'm a huge analytics dork to see what my habits are and, and, and Letterboxd does all that for you. Uh, and it was like... 20 bucks for the year or something like that. It wasn't very much money. So I went ahead and signed up. Highly recommend. Highly recommend you listeners. Again, we're not sponsored by Letterboxd, but it is a, a tremendously helpful app to track your your views throughout the year. I know if you're like us, you probably do top lists at the end of the year. 
streamlines that entire process tremendously. Uh, so that's letterbox.com. My handle on Letterboxd is uh, cmasterstalk, same as my Twitter. But of course, you can find me over on the cinematropolis.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We'll catch you again next time. I believe we're going to be talking about Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio yes. in our upcoming review. Hang tight. We'll see you again next time, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>